This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Life and Times of John Pierce Hawley, a Mormon Ulysses of the American West, narrates the wide-ranging life of John Hawley's search for an authentic Mormon faith. Melvin C. Johnson has been researching Holly's adventurous life along the American borderlands and frontier for three decades. Holly was an active member of several Latter-day Restoration denominations in Missouri, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Wisconsin, Texas, the Indian nations of Oklahoma, and Utah Territory from 1838 to 1909. A Mormon Ulysses follows Holly's adventures in the West, growing up as a logger, woodworker, settler, church official, and missionary. He helped build the first Mormon temple west of the Mississippi, battled the Comanches, was entangled in the horrors of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and pioneered the Pine Valley community in southern Utah. Holly's Western Odyssey is timely, worthy, and certainly deserves to belong in the canon of American history and biography. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the series on Mormonism for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone. And I know I say this, but I'm really, I say this all the time, but I'm really excited to have this new guest on. His name is Mel Johnson. He wrote this great book called The Life and Times of John Pierce Hawley, A Mormon Ulysses of the American West. It's published by Greg Coford Books. So, this is the first Greg Coford book we have on the show. A great publisher has been publishing some really great stuff for over the years. And I would say just recently, I would say in the past five years, they've really upped their game and have been producing some high quality books. And this book is no exception. So Mel, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks. So Mel, I just have a question for you before so before we dive into your book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, what was your career? And you have a great accent. So if you could just kind of give us a little bit of a background of where you come from, just so we can kind of understand of who you are and what made you interested in Mormon history. Sure. Uh, I have to chuckle about the comment on the accent. It is probably a combination of being born and growing up in California, educated in Utah and then doing my career in, as a college instructor in Texas. After Utah State University, I went into the military for 12 years, active duty. I was a paratrooper and then later served uh, with the JAG Corps as an enlisted legal NCO, paralegal, and at times as an investigator. I went to grad school at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. And for those of you of an age, you will remember just how fine small state universities in the 1980s were when it came to graduate programs at the master level and above. I was very fortunate to have the Rice Gang of Archie McDonald and Rich uh, 
Oh, and mine went blank. Rich Allman and Dale Carnegie and others. We called him Dale Car Carnegie, but he, I can't think of his name right at the moment. But they all took masters at Rice University and then took PhDs at Louisiana State and ended up back at Stephen F. Austin. And it was the same way for Midwestern State or Sam Houston State, Texas Western. And they really turned out a great group of students and professionals in the 1980s. And I'm pretty sure it was that way in other state-supported uh, small universities. My first history job was at Texas Forestry Museum in Lufkin, Texas. I was working on a database program created by John Gerland, and then I added to it, of the Milltown and Logging Railroad history of East Texas. Most people think of Texas who don't live there as the John Wayne, Dustin Desert, uh, the Alamo movie, or Billy Bob Thornton. In fact, East Texas is 48 counties of 20 million acres of pine and hardwood, and it's a lumber industry area and still is today. So we were recording about Milltown history and logging and railroads. And while I was doing this, Daniel, I kept coming across these comments about the Mormon millers out on the Texas frontier in the 40s and 50s of the 19th century, and that really puzzled me. So I created another database on the sign and every time I came across something with them, I would enter it. And by the time I was done in 96, I was on a track for the Lyman White Colony from Wisconsin to Texas. And all of the very interesting personalities that were members of it, the lives they lived, and the illumination that they gave about being Mormons on the frontier in the middle of the 19th century. So when you when you started finding more information about this, especially when you were working at your job, it, it just piqued your interest to kind of dive more into it, sounds like. That's correct. That's great. So where does John Pierce Hawley come into play with this? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure most people aren't familiar with John Pierce Hawley. And I know your first work was with Lyman White. So could you kind of give us an idea of who Lyman White was and how you kind of got interested in John Hawley through that, through that line? Sure. Um, Lyman White was one of the stalwart figures of early Mormon history that was absolutely converted to the apostolic and prophetic mission of Joseph Smith. He was one of the common stock commune Rigdonites out in eastern Ohio from about 1828 on. Uh, very active in the Rigdonite community, a Baptist-like, but also with future Church of Christ connections. And when Sidney Rigdon 
converted to the LDS church. Almost the entire Rignanite community of more than a thousand members out there in Ohio and Pennsylvania converted over that next year of 1830 to 1831. Ever after that, Lyman White was absolutely committed to Joseph Smith. He was a towering figure in the Mormon Missouri Civil War of 1838, and the Missourians and the old settlers were truly terrified of him. He was a big man, and he would move around with bandana on his head, carrying a cutlass and a great one-shot uh, muzzle-loading pistol. And the Missourians wanted him out of the way. Lyman was one of those who went to jail at Liberty with Joseph Smith served in stake presidencies, and then in 1841 became the junior member of the Quorum of Twelve and held that position for a number of years. In 1841, the church was experiencing a building boom at Nauvoo, wanted to build the Nauvoo House and the Nauvoo Temple, so lumber was needed. The Black River Pine Mission in Wisconsin Territory on the Black River was opened in 1841 with Peter Hawes, Alpheus Cutler, George Miller, Lyman White, and others on the building committee to supervise it. The first couple of years under Hawes and Cutler, the milling and logging did not produce the types of results that were necessary to supply Nauvoo with building materials. So George Miller and Lyman White were tasked to be on the ground. The Hollies by that time were living in Montrose, Iowa, right across from Nauvoo. John Pierce Holly was a young teenager at that time. And the Hollies, the Moncours, the Curtises, the Williams, other names that would become prominent in Bandera, Texas, after the white colony dissolved, all moved to the sawmill community and logging fronts along the Black River. George Miller, tremendous businessman, put the sawmills on a very good financial uh, position. And Henry W. Miller of the Red Brick Store down in Nauvoo, a sawmiller himself, no relation to Bishop George Miller, was brought up to the sawmill community to run the sawmills. And there were four or five small ones for which he was tasked. And he improved uh, production by 300% within just a few months. With White and the two millers, 
families committed to the mission like the Hollies and their friends, uh, they provided all the lumber that Nauvoo needed. But we get the Holly family into the story that way. Okay. Now, you had mentioned in your book that while writing your first book in and I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it's called Polygamy on the Pedernales, uh, Lyman White's Mormon Village in Antebellum, Texas. You're saying that when you were studying Lyman White's um, life and when he eventually, you know, after the death of Joseph Smith, starts his own Latter-day Saint movement in Texas, you said that John Pierce Holly kept popping up in the story. And I just asked, could you give us a little bit more of an explanation on that? Like, why is Holly, why does Holly keep popping up in the story? Sure. Holly is one of those Latter-day Saints that is privileged in our history in two ways. One, he's an interesting character who participates and witnesses many of the seminal events in early Mormonism. He and his brother are early cow herders in Ray and Caldwell County during the Mormon-Missouri War. Their father was hiding out in the woods for some months, trying to not be killed by the Missourians. So his boys were taking care of the farm and the family herds. And Holly interacted with all of that with his brothers. The second reason why he's important, he wrote about all of it, and the writings survived. As a 32-page autobiography, the RLDS Church, Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now the Community of Christ, based in Independence, uh, had his journal uh, memoir in their archives, and I found it in 1996. Also wrote a long letter to Joseph Smith III, and then in 1892 was a sworn witness in the Temple Lock case. We have a lot of records out there that we don't know about. Uh, the known known and the known unknown and the unknown unknown. Well, in this case, it's the known unknown. We know that there must be other memoirs, uh, journals, diaries, letters in the community of Christ organizations in western Iowa, across the border in Nebraska and northern Missouri the same way that there is for the Latter-day Saints from Idaho and Wyoming all the way down into Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico. And I'm going to go off on a slight tangent here, Daniel. I think all sure. good historians interested in Mormon studies should go to their local universities that are involved in particular areas, uh, Graceland University of the Community of Christ in Lamoni, Iowa, Utah State University in Logan, Utah, 
uh, Snow College in Ephraim, Utah, etc., and have a roadshow restoration Mirablia weekend on a Friday and Saturday. Do it as local projects. Invite everybody to bring in what they've got from great-grandma and great-great-grandpa and the families, bring in the photos, bring in the letters, bring in the journals, copy them or donate them, and then also provenance them. There's tremendous amount of history sources out there that you and I and everybody else interested in our niche, in our subgenre of history, don't have access to. But I'm sure you, just like me, would love to get your hands on original stuff from the period. Oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And well, in some of the documents you were talking about with Holly, you you've you included those and published them in as part of the appendix of the book, which I really appreciated. So thank you for doing that, especially like the letter he wrote to Joseph Smith III, um, the transcript from the Temple Lot case. Yeah. Um. And I am sure that there are quite a lot of other primary documents out there that are just like that. And what we need to do is locate them. Also, Holly is important. I was talking about his incidents as a young cow herder interacting with the Missourians uh, during the Civil War down there. Or working in the sawmill communities in Wisconsin Territory, or down in Texas, where he and his comrades in the colony built the first Mormon temple west of the Mississippi in 1849. Not in St. George, like we were all taught. It was a little white-eyed temple in Zodiac. Now, some of my uh, LDS friends would get irky, and I'm talking about 20 years ago. So let me make sure that I emphasize that we're talking about a Mormon restoration era temple based on Kirtland and Nauvoo, but not a Latter-day Saint temple as you would find in the Utah Mormon church. He lived in the Indian nations, Cherokee, Choctaw, in Oklahoma Territory in the mid-1850s. And there is an entire history there that has not really been written. Dr. Alan LeBaron from Utah State University did manage to publish a Mormon Sanctuary in Indian Territory in the Chronicles of Oklahoma during the 1850s. What he writes is pretty good, but he leaves off the second half of the mission up to 1860 when Henry Eyring, the mission president, brings the mission home and closes it and goes to Utah at the direction of President Brigham Young. Henry Eyring is the great-great-grandfather of Henry B. Eyring, the current, no, great-grandfather 
of Henry B. Eyring, the current second counselor in the LDS First Presidency. And that's only half the story with Holly. He does a wagon train across the West once they reconvert to the LDS Church. He is a member of the opening of the Cotton Mission in Washington County in 1857. He is involved in the Mountain Meadows Massacre with two of his brothers. He's a bitter enemy, and it is returned by John D. Lee. What is interesting, Lee says that he thinks he remembers John Hawley was at Mount Meadows Massacre, but he does not do it with the vehemence, the virulence that he denounces others. Hawley says he was not there. In fact, he says he was nearly murdered by his brethren down in the Washington ward for his condemnation of the massacre. He becomes a presiding elder for 10 years in that beautiful Pine Valley in Washington County, later a first counselor in the bishopric when the ward is organized there, goes on a five-month mission for the LDS Church to go convert family and friends in the RLDS Church in Western Iowa. And that's a good example of this fluidity in this back and forth uh, context of Mormons of all various uh, denominations moving back and forth, we think the West as a vast wilderness, which it was, but the Mormons were very good at collapsing time and space, particularly after the telegraph and the railroad come to Utah Territory. And then when Holly finally converts to the RLDS church, and I've tried to imagine in my mind what his final sermon was like in the Pine Valley Ward when he tells these people that he has spent a decade in a wild and woolly frontier that he is going to Iowa and joining those Josephites, which Brigham Young called the most desperate of all apostates. I would have liked to have been a fly on that Ward House wall that day. And when they do, he and his brother and their families moved to Western Iowa in 1870. He's lived half of his adult life. He's only 44. He will spend 39 years, almost 35 of them, very active in the RLDS priesthood as an administrator and an RLDS missionary. He will baptize hundreds in Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri, Indian territories again called to Texas, but then finally old age catches up with him, and that's a mission call that he does not fulfill. Holly's interesting because we're able to see the American West 
through his eyes. Uh, Will Bagley and I grew up together in California. And Will made a comment that I agree with wholeheartedly. Will said that you cannot understand the American West if you don't understand Mormonism, and that you can't understand the history of Mormonism if you don't understand the American West. And I agree with that 100%. John Hawley is one of those individuals that gives us a window onto all of that. That's great. Wow. Yeah. And I love the subtitle of your book because you call him a Mormon Ulysses of the American West. And he really is. He's like an Odysseus or an Ulysses. His 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 life journey is very epic. As you said, it's very fluid. He's interacting with all these different people. And John Hawley's life is not just a Mormon story. It's an American West story. It's and it's yeah. It's good stuff. And for all those who might not have heard, Will Bagley is the a great historian who wrote Blood of the Prophets, uh, a very well-known book on the Mountain Meadows Massacre and an award-winning book on it. Uh, so yeah, again, it's just, just the two of you talking to each other. You can see we're we're in, we're in the, we're talking to people who really know their stuff, especially about the American West. And um, I wanted to ask a little bit more. You've touched on a lot of really interesting points, Mel, and I just kind of wanted to pry at those a little bit. So First, I guess, you know, we've talked about all these really important topics with Holly and Lyman White and how Holly's life, you know, interacts with the American West, with Mormonism and all the different uh, Latter-day Saint groups. But I guess we, if we can go back to the beginning first and say, why did Holly join Mormonism in the beginning? And I guess we'll just kind of go from there through his life and just kind of show snippets of the book. Sure. Um, like so many conversions in the Mormon church from the early beginning to today, uh, mother and father convert, and then the children convert. Holly was baptized in 1837 in his 11th year and never, ever looked backwards. Read the Book of Mormon, had a testimony of it, had a testimony of Joseph Smith as the prophet of the restoration of the gospel and all things restored and all new things that were coming. And John wanted to make sure that he was in the forefront, magnifying his callings, his priesthood, his family position, turn all of the blessings that the restoration had to offer him. Uh, the primary issue, of course, and here's another example for Mormonism of that day and age, who do you follow after Joseph Smith and his brother are murdered in June of 1844? Well, he follows his family and his father, Pierce Holly is the patriarch for the Whiteite colony in Wisconsin Territory. And Joseph Smith gave Lyman White a mission to go to Texas, open a colony, and see if it would be a possibility there for Joseph Smith and the church to move down to the Republic, not the state, the Republic of Texas, and get the church out from under the domination of the federal and state governments. 
so Holly, in that sense, was like so many others, following family and leadership. For the older people, and then Holly would have to go through this himself, you're looking for the proper leadership. Is it conferred authority? The last charge to the apostles, so the Quorum of the Twelve become the leadership thereafter? Or are you looking for apostolic, charismatic leadership with angelic ordination? And James Strang fits that. Most people today do not understand how confused the saints were in 1844 to 1845. They were confused, they were bewildered, they were bitter, but they were believers. And I think uh, Mike Quinn put it best when he said it was not so much about priesthood, though it later would be for people like Holly. But in that day and age, it was about who could lead. Brigham Young was a leader. Lyman White was a leader. James Strang was a leader. And Mormons would adhere to those groups where they would find stability and succor, they would hope. John Holly was no different than anybody else. He had a lifetime interest in making sure that he was following the right leadership that was leading members in the restoration. In the end, by the end of the 1860s, for him it became a conflict in his head between conferred authority with Brigham Young and the Twelve and ordination and patrilineal leadership in the Smith family from Joseph Smith Jr. to his son, Joseph Smith III. Lyman White believed in that, in the patrilineal leadership eventually, and that certainly influenced young John Hawley down in Zodiac, Texas. Okay. So Lyman White once Joseph Smith is murdered, uh, and you ha- like you said, you have that succession crisis, you have all these different leaders that are popping up saying that they're the true leader that is, that's going to lead the, the, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. First, John follows Lyman White down to Texas, and you're saying that Lyman obviously was a, a leader, obviously was a very uh, fierce um, supporter of Mormonism, and uh, like you said, throughout the book, you're talking about his, those examples of that, so we can see why Holly would have been attracted to white, but when he gets down there to Texas, you know, things start to kind of unravel for Holly and you bring that out really well in your book. Can you just give us a little bit of a snippet about that? Sure. It did not happen overnight. The colony takes off in March of 1845 on this epic journey from Wisconsin Territory all the way to the Republic of Texas, 1,700 miles over 14 months before they land outside of the little Texas village of Austin with 700 people. 
So they are Mormons, meaning that they're not the cool kids on the block. So they have reasons to adhere to one another very, very tightly. So you have colony-centric people that are very, very happy with who they are, where they are, and who they're following. <coughs> it takes seven years before there is a major schism in the White Ike Colony. It occurs up in Burnett County on Hamilton Creek. That's a location of the beautiful cemetery of the White Ice that I have posted online. And as any Mormon split, it's over family. And it's an argument between John's father, Pierce Holly, the patriarch, and Lyman White, the apostle and leader of the colony, on who is going to select names for newborn children. John and his wife, Sylvia, had two boys fairly quickly. And Patriarch Holly and Apostle White quarreled over that. Patriarch Holly submitted to it but carried a bone of contention. And in 1853, moved up to Indian Territory with his wife and a few friends. John and George Hawley, his brother, held on for about a year working at the mill there, the former Mormon mill that then belonged to Noah Smithwick, an old Texan. And then finally, 1854, uh, the Hollies and some of their friends moved on up to the Indian nations in what is now eastern Oklahoma. Uh, notice the intertwining of family, genealogy, lineage, and conferred authority. The final straw for John Lyman had a revelation in 1854 that he said the Lord had called him to take his colony to Mexico. And for half of the colony, that was a no-go. And they split off from it. The colony was reduced to less than 100 members by then and moved on down to Bandera, Texas, about 55 miles west of San Antonio, uh, and spent the last four years of the colony there. Lyman White, in March of 1858, decides, well, the church is not coming to Texas. So he wanted to go see family one last time. He's 62 by then, up in supposedly Jackson County. I'll tell you, Daniel. If Lyman White, the enemy of the Missourians, had landed in Jackson County shortly before the Civil War, they would have lynched him in a heartbeat and driven everybody with him away. Where Lyman was heading was to western Iowa, where family and friends and 
the children of Joseph Smith were living. They were over in Illinois, but their relatives were in Iowa. So the 80 remem remaining members pack everything up, load their wagons, and on the second day of the trek out by Dexter, Texas, just outside of San Antonio, Lyman White dies of apoplexy brought on by opium and alcohol addiction. Remember at that time in the United States that opium, morphine, etc., uh, were legal products to market. And Lyman was not the only leader with a addiction problem. I could give you the names of a dozen in the Quorum of the 70, Quorum of the 12, and in some of the other leadership quorums and the other denominations. Anyway, he dies on March 2nd, 1858. Most of those people return to Bandera and they remain in that area, Bandera, Fredericksburg, Solomon Creek, etc. The others go up to western Iowa and taking journals and letters and diaries with them. They will become RLDS up in western Iowa after 1860. And in 1865, those Whiteites send three missionaries back down to Bandera in central Texas and have a revival mission down there. Build a wooden floor bowery with uh, boughs on the top of it, open to the air, and over a six-week period convert 45 members to the RLDS church. <laughs> There's a very active RLDS chapel in Bandera right up into the 1970s. It's a good history. Oh, yeah. So we it sounds can stop like it. there because I can go on all day about that. <laughs> no, it sounds great. So you had touched on this earlier, and I wanted to talk a little bit about it. You talked about the Zodiac Temple that Holly helped built. What was the Zodiac Temple and what was its purpose? I mean, was it just for listeners to understand? I mean, there was a Kirtland Temple and then they built the Temple in Nauvoo. What did the Zodiac Temple resemble and what was what was supposed to be performed in that temple? Was it supposed to be like Kirtland? Kirtland was it supposed to be like Nauvoo? Was it a little bit of a mixture of both? It revolves around the development of the endowment. Kirtland Temple was a spiritual endowment. Endowment means gift. Uh, a spiritual gift of priesthood and spiritual power to bring forth the church and the doctrines of the New Day of the Latter-day Saints. Lyman White received his endowment in the Kirtland Temple. And a lot of people note the Pentecostal nature of that endowment, speaking in tongues, interpreting in tongues, praising, enthusiastic expressions very common to the Second Great Awakening. Uh, think of Methodist or Baptist campground meetings. 
But we really should be careful how we use Pentecostal because it's a term that's really appropriate to 70 and 80 years later with the Azusa Street Revival in California that leads to the modern Pentecostal movement. I think it's better to say that it is very common with the Second Great Awakening in enthusiastic expression and outward expression of commitment and conversion to the doctrines of Jesus Christ. It was not an endowment in the sense of Nauvoo. In Nauvoo, the endowment becomes further developed by Joseph Smith and after his death by Brigham Young to change from not just a spiritual endowment, but an endowment of works that allows the initiate to receive the anointings, washings, blessings, and sealings, along with the appropriate word signs and tokens, so that when you or I die, and we have been endowed with this, when we're raised from the grave, we are able to do as Brigham Young sermonized in 1853, to have those signs, tokens, and knowledge, to be able to walk through and pass the angels and sentinels before the throne of God so that we could enter into the throne room and the presence of God. So you can see the two different concepts of that. Brigham Young develops it mm-hmm. much more than that. Lyman White does not go through the Nauvoo Temple. He is married polygamously and given his endowments in a private ceremony in Nauvoo, as so many of the Quorum of Twelve and others had been from 1842 to 1844. So he had this one single exposure to it, Daniel. But Bishop George Miller had been very active, one of the first nine initiates into the beginning of the Nauvoo Endowment. And three years later, he is found in the records, uh, Devery Anderson and his wonderful work on the endowment companies, uh, perfuming uh, bottles of oil for anointings, etc. So you end up with Lyman White, Bishop George Miller down in Zodiac, and they both come to the conclusion that the Nouveau Temple was not accepted by God, that the anointing, sealings, blessings, endowment had not been done within the time limit that the Lord had given them in Nauvoo. Therefore, all of that Nauvoo was worthless. So White and Miller are going to create a Mormon temple down in Zodiac that will give an honest, literal endowment. So you have White's exposure in Kirtland, 
in privately in Nauvoo, Miller's much greater exposure to Nauvoo rites and rituals. And they build this little two-story building with the temple on the upper floor where the compartments can be sealed off by blankets and sheets and whatever. And there they have a smaller version of the Nauvoo Temple endowments. They have an endowment. They have ceiling for time and eternity. They have adoptions. They have anointings. Foot washing is a big deal. And the ceiling is much different than the ceiling in the Kirtland Temple. The ceiling there is done with repetition three times of the Hosanna shout by the congregation sealing their endowment upon them. The sealing is done with consecrated oil in Zodiac. And there, once the male is anointed and sealed as a king and priest, he turns around and he washes the feet of his wife, anoints her, and seals her as a queen and priestess. So in the Zodiac Temple, the women receive the priesthood also, as they do in the Nauvoo Temple. Uh, they do baptisms for the dead there, and Ron Romig, the senior archivist at the RLDS archives in 1996, along with showing me the John P. Hawley autobiography that he generously allowed me to copy by typing. He pulled down an old register and handed it to me, and it was the register of the Zodiac Temple, Zodiac Temple Administrative Record, with page after page after page of those going through the ordinances, those performing the ordinances, those standing as proxy in the ordinances, those who witness the ordinances, and then those who sign off as the officiator in that ordinance. Uh, nine leaves of that, original leaves of that, are still uh, preserved in the archives at the Community of Christ. In the Iowa State Archives, you have the original signed attestation of the Zodiac Temple Administrative Records by Lyman White. And when I first looked at this stuff, you know how my generation says, well, man, that blew my mind. Well, let me tell you, it did blow my mind. I'd never seen anything like that. I had no idea that there had been a temple like that in Texas. I had no idea that the Cutlerites, following Alpheus Cutler, were performing temple ritual 
in the upper story of the houses up in Clitheroe, Minnesota, or that the William Smith Church down in Covington, Kentucky in 1850 were sending its members to Texas to go through the Temple and Zodiac to receive all the endowments, privileges, and powers that the temple provided. Um, what can I say? The LDS Temple is the center of Mormon existence. It joins together mortal existence with the supernatural and opens up a bridgeway between mortality and immortality so that the individual and the family continues together through the eternity within Mormon doctrine. I did not understand how important what I found that day in independence was 23 years ago. I, I understand it today fully. And I'm very, very grateful to Dr. Richard E. Bennett from BYU's Department of Church History and Doctrine, of which he was chairman at one time, that in 2014 in the Mormon Historical Association uh, meeting at San Antonio, that he stood up and gave his presidential address and acknowledged that I and Michael Van Wagnon of Georgia Southern, who had been studying this for all of those years, that he acknowledged that indeed we were correct, that such a temple existed, such ordinances and endowments were performed, and that it was at the center of what constitutes the Mormon being for existence. I can get emotional about this. I really can. It's a big deal to me. Yeah, absolutely. I can see why. I, it's it's it opens up a whole new door within Mormon studies. It's really it's 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 a great topic. And thank you so much for elaborating so detailed. It was such with such a detailed explanation. It's it's I think people are really going to be interested in that. So thank you, Mel. So John P. Hawley joins Lyman White. He eventually gets disassociated from Lyman White or disassociates himself from, from White, Does, doesn't agree with some of the things he's doing. He goes back to Brigham Young. Why do you think that is? Now, Holly is a polygamist, so I, I could see that kind of being a, a draw where he can, he, he, you know, that's his lifestyle. But what, why else do you think he joins Brigham Young again? Well, Holly, Or not again, Holly, but you know what I mean, Holly, going back there. Holly joins the LDS Church again because he wants to be in the bosom of true Mormonism. And he becomes convinced through Henry W. Miller, once again, the old sawmiller from Wisconsin Territory, leads a mission from Salt Lake City to the Indian Territory and in what is now Eastern Oklahoma to convert Texas Mormons that have come up to the Indian Territory as well as the former Lyme uh, Whiteites. Let me make a correction here. Holly is a bigamist, not a polygamist. He was married on the prairie of Texas on July 4th, 1846, 
with, along with his brother and their sister, with their intended mates. And the young lady's name was Harriet Hobart. Well, the following year, she found a cowboy and ran away with him. There was no divorce, but Brigham Young said they were divorced, and John left it at that. John finds his true love, a young lady who was 14 at the time, that came down with George Miller's company from Winter Quarters in 1848. And he saw Sylvia Johnson fell in love. She fell in love with him. Lyman White wanted to make the young Sylvia a plural wife to his son-in-law, Spencer Smith. And young Holly and young Miss Johnson withstood the old wild ram of the mountain for more than a year before White finally gave in. And they were one of the first couples married at Zodiac for time and eternity. Uh, White never took another spouse after that. So he was bigamous at the most, but certainly not polygamist. And it was his lifelong love for Sylvia that was one of the great motivations why he eventually left the LDS church and joined the RLDS. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for that clarification. So why does he join Brigham Young then? He wants to be in the bosom of true Mormonism and convinces himself that Brigham Young holds all the keys to the priesthood and the leadership for the dispensation of the Mormon church on earth in that day and age. So a year later, everybody is converted other than old Pierce Hawley who has a deep and abiding dislike for Brigham Young. He thinks Brigham Young stole some of his property. And it was really Joseph Smith Jr. who sold it off, not Brigham Young. The old Pierce Holly and his wife stayed in the Indian Territory while his entire family there rejoined the LDS Church and moved off to Utah Territory the following year. Okay. And, but eventually Holly does get, he does disassociate himself from Brigham Young and he does go to the RLDS church or what you had said, the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which at that time is headed by Joseph Smith, the third, uh, Joseph Smith's son. So was it over polygamy or was it over other issues that he had with Brigham Young? I think it was a number of things. John Holly was one of those middle management Mormon men and women that made civilization in Utah territory spin and develop. There were thousands upon thousands, Daniel, of these men and women that were absolutely converted to the restoration and to their mission in the territory. John and Sylvia were like that. John was the presiding elder from the opening of the Pine Valley area north of St. George. And I don't know if you've ever been there. It's beautiful. 
one of the most beautiful places in Utah. And John was a great leader as presiding elder. Uh, there was a land fight for timber to try to create a monopoly for Erastus Snow, Apostle Erastus Snow, and one of the great leaders of the Southern Utah Mission. And Orson Hyde uh, had been involved in it also. And John Hawley said, I'm the presiding elder in this area. Therefore, I have the authority. And notice that. I have the authority to make these decisions in my jurisdiction. He ruled against Apostle Snow, his friend. And that was... Uh, approved by Apostle Hyde, who was Apostle Snow's superior. He and others like him made those communities work, and he worked hard too. Now, he and his brother did not make a lot of money in Pine Valley, not like some did, but they made their way. The problem that really opens it all up, there's two of them. One, John Stad fastly remains monogamous, but he wants to inherit all the blessings that he can, and he keeps hearing from priesthood leaders, including Erastus Snow, Brigham Young, etc. Very generally, the more wives you have, the more blessings you get. And secondly, Erastus Snow would not promote anybody into senior priesthood leadership positions unless they were plurally married. So when it came time to make Pine Valley a ward of its own, Erastus Snow appointed his own brother, William Snow, a polygamist, and John became his first counselor. Another example is, oh, give me a second. Samuel Knight, the great Indian interpreter, son of Newell Knight and stepson of Lydia Knight, uh, is not promoted to the high council in St. George Stake until after Erastus Snow dies though he's had more than 30 years of sterling service to the church in the Southern Utah mission. So polygamy is the driving issue. John finally decides that he's going to become a polygamist. This is 1868. Somehow he talked Sylvia into it, and he makes a comment in his autobiography that he certainly desired to want to have a quiet home so that in our language today, he wanted a buy-in from Sylvia. Well, Sylvia liked a woman over in Pinto, about a dozen miles away, Emily Dorcas Emmett. The Holly family folklore tradition, and it was Robert Holly who did the typescript for the Holly autobiography, told me the story many years ago. 
that John was going to Salt Lake City to sell his cheese and take Emily along with him, and they were going to be sealed in the uh, endowment house. So he loads everything up on the wagon, drives north through Grass Valley, tries to cross Little Pinot Creek, and the axle breaks on the back wheels. According to the Holly folklore, John took it as a sign that he should not get polygamously married. He repaired his wagon, drove on to Pinto. Emily agreed to dissolve the uh, arrangements they had made. John sent a message back to an elated Sylvia that there was not going to be a another wife in the household and went on up to Salt Lake City to sell his material. While he was up there, he wanted a new wagon and he realized Walker Brothers was selling a better wagon for $45 less than ZCMI was or the equivalent at that time. John got in trouble with the brethren for uh, doing business with agents of Satan over at Walker Brothers, but they didn't take any action on it. And on the way down to Pine Valley, as he piloted his new wagon, he went through his mind on Adam God, thought it was a stupid doctrine, would not pay any attention to blood atonement, he had already gone through that nonsense because of Mountain Meadows, and finally came to the conclusion that although Brigham Young certainly was the leader of the church <coughs> and that he had the right to revelation, that he was leading the church too much by the flesh of the arm, meeting by his own decisions instead of the guidance of the Bible, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. By the time John gets home down in Pine Valley, he is pretty shook in his position of who to follow. Then he gets called to this mission in western Iowa to go convert his brethren and friends and he gets there and discovers what good people they really are. And think about it, Daniel. He got to hold his mother in his arms for the first time in 12 years on that mission. And that must have been a truly moving moment for him and for his mom. He leaves the mission saying, well, nobody converted anybody on either side. But when he gets back to Pine Valley, he starts talking to our LDS elders, Josephites. And after a year and a half study, he and his brother George Hawley convert in the spring of 1870. And later in that fall, they, November 1870, they will move up to the train station in Salt Lake, right where the Rio Grande Depot is right now. 
one block behind it, and they took the train to western Iowa. As far as I know, he never, ever returned to Utah Territory. Oh, wow. Yeah, what I loved about the book and what I loved about reading about Holly is that you are you called it pan-Mormonism, this fluidity you talked about, and how it's a constant negotiation. I mean, you see Holly is under Lyman White. He's under Brigham Young. He's under these polygamous groups, but he never really can fully embrace polygamy. And I loved how you brought that out. And yet now he's in, and eventually he joins the RLDS church, renounces polygamy, renounces all these other ideas like you talked about with Adam God, things of that nature. You really just see how Mormonism, especially after the death of Joseph Smith, is a constant struggle for people to try to figure out where do they fit within this movement? And the movement really does take on a life of its own after the death of Joseph Smith, where it just really spreads out all across the country in all these different forms. And Holly is a witness to several of those forms. And your book is showing that. I mean, you really get to see the life of Mormonism after the death of Joseph Smith through the eyes of Holly. And I think it's a really unique perspective that you're giving us. So thank you for that. You bet. Going back to Bagley's comment about not understanding the West if you don't understand Mormonism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is that all mortal flesh is corrupt, is it not? If you will remember in his autobiography and in the 1884 letter to Joseph Smith III, he pretty much acknowledges that Joseph Smith Jr. is the fountain founder of polygamy. But in 1892, in the Lot testimony, he says he first heard about all of this from Lyman White, that he did not hear it from Joseph Smith. So did he change his mind honestly, or was he lying for the Lord? I love that wonderful phrase in defending the RLDS church. Remember, the RLDS historians, Heman C. Smith and Heman Hale Smith, are grandson and great-grandson of Lyman White. Heman C. Smith is born at Zodiac. They have access for more than 30 years to William Leyland's journal, to Spencer Smith's journal, to Lyman White's journal. They're all talking contemporary about what life was like among the Zodiacs and the white eyes. There would have been no hiding that Lyman White had four wives, that his son had three wives, that the junior wife was stolen and she ran off to George Hawley, John Pierce Hawley's brother, because George Hawley was married to the other woman's sister. So they were literally sister wives. George Hawley had three wives. John Pierce Hawley never acknowledges that. John Pierce Hawley does not acknowledge that he took 
the third wife, a teenager by the name of Jeanette Gowdy, because George was abusing her and married her to his ward, Joseph Hatfield. John never acknowledges that his sister, Mary, is the fourth and junior wife to Lyman White. She's buried in that beautiful cemetery at Hamilton Creek in Burnett County. John never acknowledges that his own brother is a polygamist. And I can give you four or five other examples from Holly and the Smith family, Heman C., Heman Hale, that there was an awful lot of outright denial and forgetting of sustainable facts that the white eye community was polygamous and that polygamy did not come from Lyman White, but it came from Joseph Smith Jr. I think most Mormon community histories have to deal with historians and members that are trying to defend their faith in the midst of cognitive dissonance. I don't know what happened between 1884-1885 when Holly is talking about Smith and polygamy, and then some years in 1892, later, uh, denying it, saying it was Lyman White. It's that I would think that the operating premise of examining cognitive dissonance, which so many love to do in Utah about the LDS church, is really pan-Mormon in that I think the other churches do the same thing with their own issues. Latter-day Saints are not alone in that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right on point with that, Mel. Yeah, Holly's life gives a good example of that. And uh, even today with the tensions, there's still the tensions of there's still a lot of people that say Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy and, and that you know him and his brother had nothing to do with it. And yet you see Holly, who experienced it firsthand later on in his life, having this, like you said, this cognitive dissonance, this negotiation of, you know, he's a member of this uh, the RLDS church, which, you know, vehemently opposes that Joseph Smith had anything to do with polygamy, or most of the people did. I know Joseph Smith III was opposed to the idea that his father had practiced polygamy. Um, and you see Holly's trying to fit within that, 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 that atmosphere, that milieu of, you know, the church. And it's, it's really interesting stuff. I, again, another, another interesting sidestep of, or not a sidestep, another uh, side issue with Holly and, and another way of looking at this pan-Mormonism through the eyes of him. Again, it's a great book. I'm talking with Mel Johnson. He wrote this, uh, the book called The Life and Times of John Pierce Holly, A Mormon Ulysses of the American West. It's a fantastic book. I really suggest that everybody who's listening, that they get a copy of this because it is definitely worth putting on your bookshelf. And Mel, what are you working on now? What can we expect to learn from you in the future? Well, I've got several irons in the family. I'm writing an article on the Zodiac Temple and going to do a comparison, contrast, and contextualization 
of uh, Kirtland, Nauvoo in the wilderness, meaning before the temple, and Nauvoo Temple itself as forerunners to what happened at Zodiac, Texas. Remember that Hawley is the only individual that compares and contrasts the Zodiac Temple rites and rituals with those in the endowment house, which he and his wife Sylvia went through twice in Utah. Also working on trying to recover the history of a man by the name of John Burton. He was a slave of color in Parowan, Utah Territory, belonged to the same family all of his life from 1797 to 1865, dies in Parowan, is buried in Parowan, one of the original pioneers, uh, was probably blood relation to the family owners. If that is true, his half-sister owned him for the last 33 years of his life. Uh, Darius Gray, the great leader of color in the LDS church today, asked me a question when we were talking about it. He said, what was the relation of John to the family? And I said, they were in love with each other. I quoted him. I can quote it out of memory. John's last letter. It was to uh, who would have been his half-niece who had gone up to the endowment house to be married. But just the tone and the love through all of the information. And Darius said, isn't that the truth of Mormonism? It's always about love of family. That comment really touched my heart because I think Darius was 100% correct. Somebody needs to bring the history of Mormonism in the Indian nations in eastern Oklahoma before the Civil War up to date. It's a fascinating study. My greatest failure as a historian is that I have been unable to find the Native American contemporary and personal records of that time. When the mission was closed in 1860 by President Irie, there were four branches with more than 100 American Indians and 18 native elders. Uh, I can't find those records. They've got to be somewhere. And then the final one, of course, is the great Ponca Camp story of 1846 to 1847 with George Miller, James Emmett, Newell Knight, Titus Billings in that group that wintered with the Ponca Indians about 125 miles upriver from Brigham Young and the rest of the group down in winter quarters. Most people don't realize that Bishop George Miller was the vanguard, supposedly, of the movement to Utah. He had a third of the church membership up at Ponca Camp with him that winter. And it made Brigham Young very, very nervous. Uh, I'd like to tell your 
listeners that there is so much pan-Mormon history to look at, to go find, to contextualize, to look at, that it isn't old stuff being rehashed. It's new stuff that's being brought forth every day. I really thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things. Awesome. And thank you, Mel, for being on. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. Really appreciate it. You bet.